Let me set the stage. It's Mad Men era New York, 1961 to be precise, and you're about to turn 39. You've been working in a career for 20 years, which, to put it mildly, has been unfulfilling. The field is comic books, and you tell your spouse you're finally going to quit this embarrassment of a job and write the novel you've threatened to write for years. Your name is Stan Lee. The Dilettante, a Ferrochrome podcast. Okay, actually, his name was Stanley Martin Lieber, but he'd been writing under the nom de guerre Stan Lee since he was 19. Stan had been working for his cousin's husband, magazine publisher Martin Goodman, in his comic book division, which had gone by various company names, but by 1961 was referred to as Marvel Comics. To put comic books in historical context, these were the bleak, lean years, where the top sellers were romance, westerns, and horror comics. The heyday of the superhero comic, which had ramped up in the late 1930s, had already died of audience neglect in the post-war years. Having spent all his adult professional life editing and writing for comics, minus a three-year stint in the U.S. Army's Signal Corps during World War II, he was ready to get out and tender his resignation to Goodman. Before he could, his boss had other ideas. Legend has Martin Goodman golfing with an executive from comic publishing competitor DC Comics, where they had launched a comic with a team of DC superheroes called the Justice League of America, and were enjoying surprisingly good sales. Was this the harbinger of another new trend in comics with the return of the superhero? Goodman, always ready to jump on and capitalize on any publishing bandwagon, tasked Lee to create a similar comic. The only problem was, among its romance western horror products, Marvel didn't exactly have any superheroes to make up a team. You can imagine Stan sitting at the dinner table with his family and mentioning this in passing to his wife. She suggests making up his own team, his own way. After all, he was just about to quit. What did he have to lose? Brainstorming with freelance artist Jack Kirby, who himself had seen better days professionally, they created a superhero team from the ground up, each with their own specific powers. The difference was they had no secret identities like most of DC Comics heroes, and got along about as well as contestants in a Big Brother reality episode. I.e., not at all. The first issue's cover looked a lot like one of their monster horror titles, with the quartet fighting a green behemoth erupting from underground. Lee called them the Fantastic Four, and it sold a lot. Stanley put his plans to quit on hold. Lee and Kirby had captured lightning in a bottle and weren't sure how to top it, so they created another character written by Lee and drawn by freelancer Steve Dicto. This time, a high school senior who's bitten by a radioactive spider gains its powers and is unsurprisingly called Spider-Man. It became Marvel's highest-selling comic, and publisher Martin Goodman started to take notice. 
Soon Stanley and Jack Kirby, with a small cadre of freelancers, started pumping out comics with their quirky brand of heroes, who had problems like the rest of us. Trouble making the rent, failing grades at school, and most of all, bickering with each other. This was the crucial difference in content that differentiated Marvel's characters from their competitors. Whereas other superheroes basically all looked like the same person with a different costume and got along smoothly and professionally, Stanley didn't draw as much of a distinction between characters' private lives and didn't make them all white-collar or millionaire playboys. Why not all were successes, the ones that sold well stayed on with Lee dropping poor-selling titles from the roster. He also created another innovation of humorous bylines for the writer, usually Lee himself, artist, letterers, and so on. Soon it was Smilin' Stan Lee and Jack King Kirby. The fans ate it up, writing letters addressed Dear Stan and Jack, which Lee further fanned the flames of adoration by having his own column in each comic called Stan's Soapbox, which had the flavor of social media before it existed. Lee and Kirby also indulged in self-parody, sometimes inserting themselves in a metatextual fashion into the comics themselves. This ramped up readership and the age demographic as well. Lee and Kirby had unwittingly fashioned more of a house brand, like Blue Note Records was for jazz, where the individual characters weren't so much as important as the Marvel brand itself. Unlike competitor DC Comics, soon Marvel's characters crossed over to each other's comics, kibitzing and heckling each other with their wise-cracking sensibilities. Lee shamelessly combined old army slang and sloganeering into imperatives like Make Mine Marvel and Face Front True Believer, whose camp irony gave Marvel Comics a hip quality with the reader in on the joke. Soon there were animated cartoons, which, while not as sophisticated as anything from Disney or Warner Brothers, would be fondly remembered with campy theme music still recited today. Like a modern-day Mark Twain, soon Stanley was doing lecture tours at college campuses while co-eds listened in rapture as he spun humorous anecdotes, all while promoting the Marvel brand. This tour eventually culminating in a sold-out show at Carnegie Hall. Marvel's stock was up, and as the 60s came to a close, Martin Goodman sold his now burgeoning publishing empire, with Lee being elevated from editor to publisher, then to president. Soon, all Marvel comics had the header, Stanley Presents, on their front pages, as he was the synonymous personification of its culture. Soon he contemplated an exit strategy as he entered his sixth decade, which involved a move to the West Coast where he would oversee Marvel's other entertainment channels, animated cartoons, TV series, and the Holy Grail movies. This last one would take a lot longer than the rest to materialize, as the zeitgeist wasn't quite right for major movies about superheroes. While DC, now owned by Warner Brothers, had put out a very successful Superman film in the late 70s, Marvel would have trouble with this, despite Lee's best efforts at promoting the brand. While there was an abortive attempt at a Fantastic Four film and an underfunded effort by B-movie director Roger Corman, 
it seemed Marvel wasn't sufficiently monetized to attempt to produce a superhero film themselves. Indeed, by the late 90s, Marvel and its owning conglomerates had to do some high-level shuffling to avoid bankruptcy. This instigated them leasing out one of their characters, Spider-Man, to Sony Pictures, which produced three acclaimed films under director Sam Raimi. Soon, another property, The X-Men, was leased out to Fox Studios, and Marvel had some breathing room. Stanley was still in the thick of it, as he made more cameos in these films than Alfred Hitchcock, playing everything from someone delivering mail to the Fantastic Four, to a hot dog vendor on the beach in an X-Men film. He was back in the mainstream, with even non-comic book readers knowing who he was. Soon Marvel formed their own studio arm, releasing one of their remaining properties, Iron Man, as a major release, to great box office returns, which helped revive the career of actor Robert Downey Jr. Lee is in that film too, being mistaken by Downey's character Tony Stark as Playboy's Hugh Hefner. Roll ahead a few years, and Marvel Studios is a powerhouse at the box office, setting the gold standard for returns and critical acclaim with films like The Avengers and Guardians of the Galaxy. While Lee, strictly speaking, isn't an owner of Marvel Studios, he does get executive producer credits, presumably with appropriate remuneration. Stan Lee's now 92, still going strong, still doing the occasional lecture, and more entrenched in the biggest entertainment success of the 21st century, all from content he created with collaborators Jack Kirby and Steve Dicto back in the 1960s. One imagines the path not taken had his wife not suggested to do just what he wanted at the ripe old age of 39. To quote Lee in an interview with film director Kevin Smith, who had himself put Lee in one of his movies, playing himself, Smith said that being a comic fan was, quote, not anything that ever got me laid in high school. Without missing a beat, Lee replies, how would you like to say I wrote them? I'd say face front, true believer. The Dilettante, part of the Fairchrome Podcast Network.